Hello and welcome to the Poet Delayed podcast. My name is Scott Edgar. I'm the host. Uh, it's been a while since I've posted and just had a lot of things going on lately, but I'm glad to be back at it. And um, I just, again, I want to thank everybody who continues to, to listen to my podcast and give me feedback. I really appreciate that. Uh, it means a lot to me. Plus, it helps me understand ways that I can do this better. And um, it's just nice to hear people express um, similar thoughts that I have about these issues. Uh, today, I'm excited. We have with us uh, Jackie Pack. She's a therapist, uh, LCSW, CSAT, uh, office. Uh, she's got a couple offices, so one of them up and running in Bountiful, Utah, and the other one is in Salt Lake City, but my understanding is you've built the location, or you've bought the location, and you're just in the process of building it out. Yes. How's that going? And everything is delayed right now, so it's very, very slow. That's construction. That is construction. And that is construction with COVID, post-COVID. Yes, and everything probably is more expensive, too, because you can't get anything. So, well, um, so I'm excited to have Jackie on today, and we're going to be talking today about a poem that I've written. It's called A Subtle Wound. So I'll just start by reading that, and I'll share a little bit about the background of the poem, and then um, Jack and I will talk about the issues in it. So again, it's titled A Subtle Wound. It says, you left me when my world was measured by a child's stride. You had to go away for a while, I was told, to ease me into the truth. You were gone and not coming back. It was involuntary, I know, you're leaving. But intent is not part of trauma's calculus, so I was not spared. Though the wound went unnoticed, there was no nervous response or reflexive recoil, as when you touch a hot pan. It was subtle, no bleeding, no blistered flesh, just a change in routine and one less setting at the table. So this poem is about my mom's uh, death. Um, she died when I was 10 years old. I've mentioned that in prior episodes. Uh, and I wrote this about a year ago, a little over a year ago, and what, what prompted it really was just these last few years kind of seeing the impact that her death had on my life because I grew up thinking that it didn't really have an impact. In fact, I actively uh, fought against the suggestion that her death somehow was or had contributed to the issues that I was having. Like, no, 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 these are my decisions. You know, I'm having problems because of decisions that I'm making. I tried to not make it an excuse or use it as an excuse. And as I've, you know, been going through therapy, I've understood or begun to understand the impact that it has had on me. In fact, actually, like just before I got married, my uncle told me one time, he said, I don't think you realize how screwed up you are because your mom died. <laughs> and I just kind of blew it off. Like, yeah, yeah, thanks, Uncle. I, yeah, okay, whatever. Let's, you know, I just didn't want to admit to anything that was difficult. Um, but, you know, so, I, so I, that was kind of the impetus as I started to understand the impact that it did have on me. And, you know, this first part, I, I remember when my dad came into the room she died at 10 o'clock on a Sunday night, um, April 8th, 1984. And I had already fallen asleep. My, um, I shared a room with my little brother, and 
he remembers a little more detail to the story than I do, but I'm just going to relate what the detail that I have. But I just remember being woken up by him, my dad. He sat on the windowsill in our room, gathered us up kind of in his arms, and I can still remember the words that he said and, and the confusion that I had when he said it. He said, someone in our family had to go away for a while. Your mother died. And I remember just thinking, somebody, before he told me that my mom died, I remember thinking, who? Trying try to figure out who had gone away for, for a while. And of course, you know, that second part of the statement really, uh, really came home. I remember crying for about an hour. And then uh, I remember after about an hour getting up, stopping crying, getting up, and at one in the morning going to get ready for school. And somebody came and explained to me that I didn't have to go to school <laughs> and that it's one o'clock in the morning um, and my mom died, so you know, don't worry about it. And I just, from that point forward, I, I haven't had a lot of emo I had not had a lot of emotion about my mom's death. I really never faced it or dealt with it. And that's really the second part of this poem. Um, uh, really, I'd probably say the third part where you know the wound went unnoticed. But before that, a, a, a principle that I kind of figured out was, you know, trauma, like I said here, intent is not part of trauma's calculus. I mean, people don't have to intend to traumatize you. You can still be traumatized by people who love you, people who want the best for you, and you can still experience trauma that way. And that was a big under understanding for me, and so that's why I put it here. And then, like I said, I thought I was spared, but I wasn't. Uh, or it says, so I was not spared, but growing up, I thought I was, you know, because I dismissed it. And, and then this last part kind of talks about how my mother's death was dealt with. I, I don't have any memories of talking to my dad or my dad talking to us about her death. Mm -hmm. We I don't remember having memories of conversations about her. Well, there were a few comments here and there, but never a discussion about how are you feeling about the, her death. Never a discussion about, hey, do you want to talk to somebody about this? It was just, you know, what's done is done. Let's move on. And so I never process, processed it. And, and like I said, now I'm understanding the... Uh, the impact that it did have on me and the things that as a growing boy from 10 years old on, what types of things I missed out on that, that were necessary for me. Right. So anyway, um, that's my poem, a little bit of background on it. Um, I've got some things I'd like to talk about about it, but Jackie, with you know, I'm just curious if you have any thoughts or anything that you want to bring yeah. up at this point. I, well, I have a lot of thoughts. Um, but first I want to say, like, when I read this poem, every time I read it and I get to the end, my heart hurts. And, you know, I, I think often we, with trauma, um, I think either we don't recognize trauma as trauma when it's happening or when it has happened for somebody that we know, or we're just really bad at handling our discomfort around somebody who has experienced trauma. And I think that's where, like I call them often, useless platitudes come in. We're trying to make the person feel better, but maybe we're really trying to make ourselves feel better or we're trying to be helpful. And I don't know that there's anything we can say that's helpful. And, you know, I think of like Stephen Levine, he writes a lot about 
grief and loss and trauma. And he talks about how, you know, trauma, in addition to being the thing that like happened to us that shouldn't have, or the thing that should have happened to us that did not, right? So in cases of neglect, and sometimes they're both happening. Something happens to us and then a response is neglected. Um, he says, so it's, it's that as well as what's happening inside of us. And those things change us, right? The brain isn't, we know the brain isn't the same after trauma. The person is not the same after trauma. And so to try to offer, you know, whatever platitude is not addressing trauma. You know, sometimes we're sitting with it. Like in your poem, you say there was no nervous response. Probably there was. I mean, if we understand how the nervous system works, of course there was. Right. But I also think of um, John Bowlby, right? So he was a psychologist in the 50s, I think, or, you know, that's... 40s, 50s probably, and he really was one of the first ones, um, here, him and Mary Ainsworth at the time. I think they were both over in the UK, and they were studying attachment. So this is, you know, post-World War II. They're looking at attachment and trauma because they're looking at traumatized people. Um, and one of the things he said that, you know, it's a famous quote I think he's known for, at least in therapy fields, is that he said, what cannot be known to the mother cannot be known to the child. And so, you know, I would think you did have a nervous system response, but it couldn't be known to you because yeah. you had nobody there to help you through that. Yeah, that's one thing that I, I you know, as I think about this, this, it's really a dilemma for a child mm -hmm. because a child has no way to deal with it. Right. I did not know. Like, I did not feel a nervous response because I shut down. Right. And so I agree with you. There was stuff going on. But I did not acknowledge it. Unconsciously, did not acknowledge it. Actually, I know I, you know, when I spent a lot of my years making jokes about not having a mom, mm -hmm. you know, using it, I call it a showstopper. You know, like where people are joking and they say a mother joke, and I break out the, well, my mom's dead, and everybody gets quiet and I'm like, hey, it's okay, it's okay. Um, but. Obviously, something was going on inside mm -hmm. because I look back at my life and it wasn't really, I didn't really notice the impacts and I didn't know that this was a cause of it initially, but it wasn't until I got married and I was in a relationship in which I couldn't check out and go home at night. It was always there. And so I had to face it. Mm -hmm. And when I, and I didn't know how to. Right, right. Nobody had taught you. Right. Yeah. And and often if it if it is not okay for us to know something, then our nervous system defends against knowing that. So humor, yeah. I can make jokes of things, I can, you know, maybe things that your uncle saw in you that you didn't know. Like you're defending against knowing that trauma, you're defending against knowing the impact of that trauma. Yeah, and the other thing that I uh, I you know, as I think back that I experienced is I was in a situation where um, I didn't feel like even if even if I felt it, I didn't feel like like I w it was a situation in which I could share it or I could say, "Hey, I'm struggling here," because I didn't feel like th that it mattered. Mm -hmm. 
because mm-hmm. we just had to move on. Um, and so that was an, that, that's been an issue for me as well when I think back. Like, it wasn't even okay to talk about it. It was like adults around me wouldn't entertain that. They wouldn't sit with me in it. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I learned just from, I think, I don't, initially I don't think there was anything that actively caused that. I think it was just, I must have just perceived that no one's talking about it. Mm-hmm. And, and, or maybe there's something happened prior to her, her death where I learned that we don't talk about feelings. You know, maybe mm-hmm. that's in, involved in it as well. Um, Which a child would also then interpret, we shouldn't have feelings. Yeah. If we can't talk about it, then we shouldn't have it. Yeah, and that, that, I mean, that I feel, for me at least, defines a lot of my childhood because we didn't have feelings. We didn't talk about feelings. There's a lot of sarcasm, you know, a lot of joking, and you know, just a lot of getting over it. Um, one thing that you mentioned earlier about um, people, you know, giving you these platitudes and, and, and so forth, um, you know, because that happened to me. I mean... Your mother, you know, you know, God needed your mother, and so she took her. And I remember as a kid, I, I know what they were trying to say to me. They were trying to um, tell me how amazing my mom was, so God needed her. And as a kid, I didn't really see the, I didn't acknowledge how messed up that is. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, I look back now and I think, really? There's something God couldn't do without my mom, you know? I mean, she was so wonderful that God just couldn't do without her. Mm-hmm. Well, what about this 10-year-old boy? You know, and so... Right. I, and younger, because you had younger yes, siblings. Yes, yeah, I had a six-month-old yeah. brother, you know, yeah. who, who, who was just a little guy. And, 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 you know, I was number three of seven. And so I was 10, and, you know, the other four were younger than me. Um, so, but I feel like that... Because I think I've said that to people, you know, in the t- back in the day, and I've given people like I have a niece who she was born deaf, and I remember telling my sister, "Oh, God really has must trust you, mm. because He's entrusted the um, development and the growth of this child with this um, inability to hear to you." And I think back now, and I think that probably wasn't very comforting to her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that didn't ease anything, you know. Now we we find all sorts of workarounds because it's uncomfortable and we don't know what to say and often I think there are not words right I remember when I was in grad school um, I went to LSU and had flown home for the holidays and spent the holidays back here in Utah and uh, had recently just flown back to start school and one of my really good friends her dad unexpectedly passed away um, had a heart attack and he was driving at the time fortunately nobody else was hurt and I knew I had to fly back home, even though I had just been here, right? And so I got a plane ticket, flew back home, and met our other really good friend, and we were going to go up to the house together. And she said, like, I'm so glad you you flew back home because I don't know what to say. And I was like, why do you think I know what to say, right? And she's like, well, you're in school to be a therapist. And I was like, oh, I haven't taken this class yet. <laughs> Dang it, I haven't gotten that far in my studies, right? And... And instead, you know, we, you know, we knew the family really liked Diet Coke, so we picked up a 12-pack of Diet Coke and just went to the door, and, you know, my friend answered the door, and I was just like, I'm just so sorry. And 
there were no other words like and we just sat with them and the family and talked about our memories of her father and they shared memories and and I also know right it's gonna be hard even after people stop coming over and funerals happened it's hard yeah I <clears throat> to your point you said that you just just sat with them you know as a parent because I, I run into this dilemma you know my kids will come to me with things issues that are really big to them and I used to think okay what wise thing can I say to them to help them and I've come to the conclusion that I don't have to say anything really mm-hmm. and so what I've been trying to do is just listen mm-hmm. and and I tell my kids I, I, I you know if you want me just to listen I'll just sit and listen if you want it you know if you want to converse with me about it I'll converse with you about it. If you want to just have me tell you stuff, I'll tell you stuff. Kind of put the ball in there, like, right. what do you need here? But the default for me is, because I, I, I'm listening to him, and I'm straight and thinking, okay, what can I say? What can I say? And I think there's nothing that I can say because what comes to mind a lot of times is, yeah, if I say that, that's dismissive to what their feelings are because they don't feel like there's a solution to their problems. And here I'm going to give them some trite little quick solution to their Mm -hmm. problems. Mm -hmm. That doesn't help. And so I just, I've tried to just listen and then just express to them that, you know what, from what you've explained to me, your situation, I can understand why that would be hard for you and difficult for you. And, you know, just sit there and listen as, as they talk about it. And what I've, my experience has been that they will, share their feelings with me and then they'll feel better. Mm-hmm. It, the problem's not solved necessarily, right. but they were able to get that out and move on. And, and I guess just kind of clear it out of their mind so they get outside of that closed loop in their head. I mean, I think often what makes things better doesn't fix anything, right? But what gets people through is moments of connection. Yeah. People showing up, like you were saying, just listening, validating that that must be so hard. I that totally makes sense to me what you're feeling. That connection, again, it doesn't make it better. It doesn't change whatever difficulty or loss they're experiencing. But it shows up and says, You matter to me and your feelings are not too much for me. I can sit here and hold space. And I mean it we can't hold space. Sometimes we, you know, that maybe is kind of a trending word right now, but Holding space means we get in that space. Yeah. Like, I have to feel what you're feeling. Or I'm not holding space, right? I'm like, here's a nice box for you to sit in, and I'll look at you sit there. But really holding space is I get in that box and sit there with you and feel what you feel. You know, I, was, I went to dinner with a friend of mine <clears throat> back in February. We were going to a concert. We went to eat first of, beforehand. And I remember we are sitting there, and this was a very dark time for me, very hard time, probably the hardest in my life. Um, there's a lot of, you know, I, I refer to it as my avalanche of broken things mm-hmm. just coming down on me. Um, and we were sitting there eating and we were just talking and invariably my, our conversation kind of turned to the situation I was in. And I still remember I was talking to him and whenever he could sense emotion in my voice, or whenever the, whenever the specific thing I was talking about got like kind of heavy and deep, 
he would put his fork down, stop eating, and look at me and listen to me. And that just struck me so, um, it was so powerful to me. I don't know that he was doing it on purpose. That's just who he is. Mm-hmm. He just sensed that he need, he's just sensed that he needs to listen to me. And one thing that I've kind of noticed is I didn't get a lot of that when I was a kid. Um, I spent a lot of time trying to kind of pacify and take care of other people and not necessarily in healthy ways, just kind of doing, you know, avoiding chaos, you know. Um, and so I, I've, I've noticed because I've always been like touched by like when there's movies when somebody is lost or somebody is whenever there's some sort of a, an emotional connection between mm-hmm. two characters that has always touched me and uh, even even like in the new testament the the scriptural stories in the new testament those the ones where christ um notices somebody that nobody else notices. Like, I, in particular, I think of the one where the, the lady who had an issue of blood for 12 years reaches out and touches the hem of his, his uh, robe, and he stops, and he says, who touched me? And the apostles say, or look at all these people thronging and pressing about you, and you say, who touched you? And he said, I felt virtue go from me. And he turned around, and he went and found her. And that story that that has always touched me and has always been so powerful to me and and I just within the last six months maybe I, I think that's probably because I never got that and like in internally I've I've craved it and I see this and I think oh mm. you know he's she just a nobody to everybody else but not to him mm-hmm. and she didn't really do much either it's not like she made this big grandstand she just reached out and touched the hem of his garment and that so uh, you know I've, I've thought I wonder if I'm so drawn to that because I feel that way like in movies or literature or um, anything like that where there's somebody who notices an individual who is unnoticeable to the other people I've always been touched by that and I wonder if it's because I grew up without that type of a connection I think certainly you know, even while you are defending n- not knowing, right? You're, you're defending yourself from knowing the impact of this or what you lost or the fact that, like, you know, I, I mean, sometimes we get hung up on the word should, but, like, your life should have gone the way it was already set on that track. And it didn't. And that happens for a lot of people, right? But you couldn't know that. And... But that yearning for that, that, I mean, on some level, you knew that. Like, even though you're defending against your mind knowing that, right, your nervous system still knew what it knew. Um, and so, of course, you're craving that. Like, it's not like because now you're not going to have that, the need goes away. Yeah, and I've noticed that, actually, you know, and I think I mentioned this in a, a, a different podcast episode. Um you know, with my friends, I would notice their interactions with their mother, and I'd notice, like, they just lay their head on their mom's shoulder or the mom's lap. And I remember, like, craving that and, and wanting that and, and not having that. Um, so, yeah, I think... I don't think there's a way for us to really 
know, you're the expert here. But I don't <laughs> think there's a way for us to really escape um, escape that that trauma. I mean, right. in a healthy way, at least. I mean, I guess uh, maybe not. I mean, at all. the other thing, right, is especially in a situation like this where a parent dies and the, the kids are just too young, right, mm-hmm. to lose a parent and. There's not a like there's not a way that's going to be as good as the parents still living, right? There's not. But can we kind of hodgepodge together a plan B, C, D, E, F, G and try to provide for those kids what they're not getting? Yes, right? It takes awareness. It takes you know, staying with that discomfort of you know, because I think sometimes when people are not directly affected by the person who dies, you know, they'll they'll feel that for a little while and then they go back to life. And to hold that awareness that this family is not going back. There's no going back, right? And so I'm going to, on somewhat of a regular basis, show up and give what they're not able to have. You know, I, I think that can happen. I mean, I... I'm trained in trauma work, right? So fortunately we know we can put together a plan that goes back and addresses and provides healing. That's not gonna be the same as if that loss didn't occur. But we have to be able to heal from that, even if it's decades down the road. Um, And I think that's the good news about what we're learning about with trauma is we can heal that, it doesn't, make up for the loss right we're never going to change that right but the impact can be less severe yeah um so i've I've got a case right now in my law practice where a client had to they got a a artificial disc replacement and some of the literature that i read was that um it doesn't replace the natural disc perfectly but it's a lot better than um, like fusing the neck because mm-hmm. you still have some motion. So, you know, to analogize mm-hmm, that to mm-hmm. what you just said, it's, it helps you to get along. I mean, I, a couple of things, I have a couple of thoughts about what you just said is, um, like I have a, a nephew of mine passed away unexpectedly recently, um, six days before his 21st, first birthday. And it's tragic for everybody. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I've had this thought since then. So this was two weeks ago, or it was the fourth. So whatever today is, uh, three weeks ago, I guess, and almost three weeks ago. And I've, I've kind of observed this because it was such a shock to everybody, perfectly healthy, um, and everybody mourned. And I know everybody who was close to him is still sad and they miss him. But most everybody's been able to kind of get back to their daily schedules. But I know that his mother, especially she's the only one I've really communicated with, is still devastated. I, I can't imagine losing a child. Well, you you can't. What normal schedule? There's no more normal schedule. Yeah, true. Yeah, I mean, there's a part of what part of what occupied your normal schedule is gone. Right. And there's right. no way to get that back. And and. So yeah, I, I mean, and I've thought about that, about she's, the whole family, it alters the whole family 
going forward completely. You know, and, you know, I heard a, and, and another thing I want to mention is, you know, Gabor Mate, he, I was re- uh, listening to an um, interview that he gave, and he was talking about these childhood traumas. You know, a mm-hmm. big thing that he talks about is um, addiction being, you know, having its roots in childhood trauma. Right. And he was talking to the person he was in an interview with, and he said, and he he gave him some examples. This this guy, I think it was Tim Ferriss, gave him some examples of things that were traumatic in his childhood, I, I think was the setup. But then he said, well, tell me, you know, give me examples. So we gave him an example. And then he said, were you ever, were, did you ever talk to anybody about what happened? He said, no. And Gabor Mate said, that's the trauma. Mm-hmm. We all have traumatic experiences. And I've always been baffled by that until he said that because I've thought, well, I'm not the only person who's had a parent die, you know. And I know that there's people in the world who have, um, you know, who you could say their life is much more difficult than mine was, even with my mom passing away. But I think there's people who whose mom didn't pass away who maybe had an even more difficult emotional upbringing than I did. Uh, and, and so I've wondered, like, well, why do some people respond differently than others? And and I'm sure there's other reasons than just this, but one of those is the the um, inability or the lack of opportunity to talk about it, to mm-hmm. to work through it, and to discuss it, and and get outside of that closed loop in your head. Right. And it's the, the inability to do that. That's the trauma. That's what stays with you, because what's that book? Uh, body keeps a score or something yeah, like that. Yeah, the body keeps a score. Yeah, it gets stored in you. And I've, I've, I've had experiences where I've felt. Well, it happens in the body. And so if we don't have a channel to release that, talking about it, mm-hmm. feeling it, right? Yeah. Often I find with people like if I, as a therapist or even as a friend or something like that, if I will show up and feel with them, they're more likely to be able to actually feel what they need to. And then it starts to discharge. Again, that doesn't mean that we're not going to still have feelings around it or we're not going to remember how that felt. We are, right? But we're not living with those emotions inside of us forever, right? Which is the alternative to having somebody to talk about and process and have the reactions that we're having internally. Yeah, so earlier you said, you know, we don't really... it's, we don't heal, we don't get back to what you would have been had, like, my, I can't get to back to the point that I would be now if my mom hadn't died. I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's something. But to be aware of the impact, mm-hmm. to be able, like you said, to sh- sit with somebody and, and experience the emotions as they come initially and to be aware of them and to know, okay, because of this, I'm going to, these types of things are going to be, you know, be obstacles for me. These are going to be difficult for me in my life because of this. Then I can approach my life in a way maybe that I can mitigate the Mm -hmm. difficulties. Well, you also learn when these difficulties surface, I know that talking to somebody helps. Yeah. And so we talk to people, right? We we continue to unpack that with people who we trust and who, who we know will show up and listen to us. And so not only do we learn that, like, I... I can actually get through this, but like we learned that like actually having a connection helps me. And so, you know, if let's say somebody 
has had an experience like this, or they've had trauma in their lives, uh, a traumatic experiences, whatever it may be. I mean, you could, I don't know that we could put a cap on the number of mm-hmm. things. You know, if there's somebody who's thinking, you know what, I think something happened and it's really impacting me now. Obviously, when they're a child, when we're children, we are, are not able to deal with it because we just aren't in a position. Mm-hmm. We don't even know what's going on. So as we get older, though, when, you know, if somebody's seeing these um, dysfunctions in their lives, life and they're wondering, like, is there something going on? What, what are some things that somebody in that situation could do to be able to kind of work through or, or figure stuff out? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, obviously I'm a proponent of going to therapy. Um, I think it is important to go to somebody who, a therapist who is trauma-informed. Not all therapists or even approaches therapy from a relational standpoint. Not all therapists do that. What do you mean by from a relational standpoint? Where in, this, in these sessions that we're having, the therapist and the client are building a relationship and we're experiencing therapy relationally. I see. So it's not, um, not a, I think of clinical as kind of an opposite of that. Like you're just seeing somebody who, you don't know this person. They're just applying the chicken boxes off. Right, right. Or we're doing worksheets and we're expanding our thinking but not necessarily addressing the feeling. Okay. So, um, yeah, I, I think that's always good. I also wonder, though, if we were better at this in our society, would we need therapists? Right? If our, if our species did this, if we knew this and we did this, I might not really have, <laughs> I might not be in high demand, right? <laughs> and, and I think we have space to grow right before we're really going to be eliminating therapists. So when you say did this, just instinctively like held space for each other. Yes. Yep. I remember, um, so Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, right? I mean, her book on death and dying. And even she said at the end of her life, like it was kind of like taken in a way I didn't mean it. Right. So she kind of came up with the five stages of grief. Right. And she was like, "I, I never meant for it to be a checklist. Like, I was not saying it goes like this, this, this. You can spell it out, and then we're done. Like, that's not was my intention. I was trying to apply some labels and some words to help people understand what they were experiencing. But, of course, our society needed a checklist, right? <laughs> and then wanted to know how to skip ahead. <laughs> um, and one of her um, understudies, David Kessler, I think was his name, and, you know, he's still around. He kind of reached out to her later in her life. And, you know, she eventually had a terminal illness. And, you know, the woman who really kind of talked in our society about grief and dying and loss said, you know, kind of at the end of her life when she had a terminal illness, it was lonely. She didn't have a lot of people who showed up, but he showed up, right? Mm-hmm. And was like, teach me what you know. And so he's kind of carried on her work. Um, but he talks about, I don't remember which books, book it is in, but he talked about like this kind of a more indigenous village kind of thing, right? And that like when somebody in the village lost somebody in their family, right, they would alter the outside of their home. So they might paint the door a different color. They might plant a tree, right? Like in a way of saying it's never going to be the same. Hmm, and so we're altering what this, you know, what our neighborhood, what our little community looked like, we're altering that. 
as representative that like you're not going to be the same we're not the same like we've changed things because of this no man is an island entire of itself right right ask not for whom the bell tolls it tolls for thee yes interesting yeah it seems like our society is just we got to move on we got mm-hmm. you know that's i'm sorry that happened to you but you know what i've got an appointment in 10 minutes right you yeah know? and we have a three-day window right yeah. kind of to plan the funeral have the funeral I mean, some companies are getting better at offering bereavement, right? And it doesn't even have to be connected to uh, death. But we really haven't done very well at acknowledging, like, no, this, you aren't moving forward for a while. And when you do more move forward, it's going to be different. Yeah, I... Um... almost get to feel sometimes where you just you need to be strong you need to be strong you know and I I don't like that either kind of Mm -hmm. like the other statement about well God needed her I don't like the statement either like uh, you've you've been so strong through all of this like you don't have to be strong through all of this and that kind of goes to the point where we don't we don't hold space for people we've got places to go well you know what you've got yeah I'm sorry that you had this tragedy in your life, but you need to be strong because you have responsibilities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, yeah, okay, but are those like social construct responsibilities mm-hmm. or are those like stuff that's, you know, life or death type responsibilities? Right, right. But these, but I think we've made these, and I call them social construct responsibilities, so important that there's no time to grieve. There's no time for human connection mm-hmm. because those things Mm -hmm. are more important. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've worked with clients where, you know, they suffer some traumatic event or they have an unexpected loss and they'll say, I want to go to work. I wanted to go to work the next week and I did. And I'm like, I mean, that's just your discomfort with what you feel. And you're trying to go back to how it was before this. And there isn't a going back. There isn't. And if you keep working through this, you're going to crash and you're going to burn at some point. Yeah, and, and you know, I'm thinking about my experience in the last six months um, going through this divorce. And there are times that I thought I just need to work and, and just I just need to distract myself. But I was never able to. You know, mm-hmm. I was never able to. But so I guess what I'm trying to say is it's not just death that causes these types of uh, death is not the only traumatic experience we can have in life that's going to mm-hmm. trigger these types of things that we're talking about. Right, right. We have to we have to let ourselves feel what's what what's coming up in us, um, you know, and then rather than just shutting it down, at least let it come, feel it, and make a decision about it at that point rather than just shutting it out and keeping it out. Right. Um, so it, you know, and you said, you know, therapy is one thing you'd recommend. And, you know, as I've been in therapy in the men's group, if I, as I've been in a men's group, I just, there have been times I've thought, everybody needs to be in therapy. I mean, every, you know, not necessarily hardcore, but everybody because we don't, like you said, to your point, I don't know that we live in a society right now that um, 
that holds space for people, even mm-hmm. in religious communities. I don't. I mean, we we kind of cast that off onto the higher power. Right. You know. Right. I'm praying for you. Yes. But don't ask me to come sit on your couch mm-hmm. and feel for you. Thoughts or feel and, with you. Yep. Exactly. Thoughts and prayers. Yep. Thoughts and prayers. Um, and so it's it's really a. Um, it's just an easy way out almost. Mm-hmm. So uh, what, I mean, we've talked about this a little bit, but, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, I've talked about kind of how I've tried to sit there with my kids. And I by no means have been trying to suggest that I've got it nailed down because I may understand, like, this is, is probably the best way to do it, but I'm still struggling with that. I mean, some conversations are hard to sit through. Right. And if my kids listen to this, I'm still sitting through them with you because I love you and, you know, yeah. I it's hard, but. I, I don't care. I'm going to be there. But um, I guess so as, as parents, like in a situation like mine, for instance, um, what can a parent do to, and we've kind of talked about this, like what can a parent do to sit there with, with, with the children, especially when you have multiple children, seven kids, my dad had mm-hmm. seven kids, mm-hmm. you know, so that even ups the uh, difficulty yeah. level. Which, again, is going to, like, no one person can step in and meet the needs of all seven children, right? right? We're going to, it's going to take a village, so the saying goes. Um, and it is, right? I, I think, you know, we have this uh, greeting that we use in our society that doesn't really mean much. How are you? Fine. Whether we're fine or not, we know that's the response. And if you ever switch it up, they're, you know, they're like, Right. <laughs> what? Like, no, I'm not asking that actually. Yeah. Just say fine. Right? Just like I just said hello. Right. But I think actually sitting down and being like, how are you? And letting them know, like, I'm, I mean it. Like, I'm not going to just walk on to the next conversation. I'm sitting here. Right. I, I think sometimes, too, like, we know that, like, being able to tell the story over and over and over, there's some repetition and in healing and you know I I recall a situation where one of my kids she was in kindergarten and so she was walking to school and I would typically would watch her get to the corner and then you know when I knew when she crossed the corner her friend was waiting and they would walk like three houses to the school we lived close to the elementary school and but we had moved into this house like when we moved in there was another house built so there was a lot of construction going on at that time and so that had happened. She had turned the corner. I had gone in the front door, shut the door. And the next thing I know, she's like at the back door, just kind of frantic, right? So I let her in and I was like, what happened, right? And she's like, I almost got kidnapped, mom. And again, I have no idea if that was true or not. Like we had a lot of cars in our neighborhood because construction. But her perception was that was a life or death situation. And she, because that's her perception, that's how she experienced it. So I could say, oh, no, you didn't. And instead, I was like, I am so glad you came through the dirt lots to mm. the back door. Yeah. Like, the car couldn't go there. Like, you're so brave. That was so smart. You got yourself back home. And now I'm here, and, like, it's over. Right? Because I think also with trauma, there's not an ending. Like, there's not really a beginning. The middle gets weird, and we don't know if it ends. Right? Because... We're just moving forward. That's not an ending. Right. And so I would say to her, I'm so glad you got back here. I'm so proud of you. Like, you were so brave, and now you're back here safe, and everything's okay, and it's over, right? But, like, for the next month, we'd be driving in the car, or we'd just be at home, and she'd be like, Mom, remember when I almost got kidnapped? (laughs) 
yeah, and we'd go through the story. And then you got safe and you got back to mom and everything was safe. Yeah, and then two days later, mom, remember when I almost got kidnapped? Yep, I do. And then you knew how to do this and we would go through the story. Yeah. And you know, that's kind of how we integrate and we process it. And kids will do that on their own. Like, it's not like, I mean, I kind of knew how to handle that because I'm a therapist. Right. But she just kept bringing it up. And I would just sit with her through that story as many times as she needed to tell it. And I didn't have to say, oh, you're fine. It wasn't that big of a deal. It wasn't a kidnapper. Like, that her, her nervous system experienced it as a significant threat. That's huge because <clears throat> as a parent, you get a lot of stories from kids, mm -hmm. fun stories. And, but, and it's so easy just to, just to dismiss it mm -hmm. because you have an appointment or you have something you need mm -hmm. to be doing. Um, you know, uh, one thing that I know I've been guilty of and I hear it a lot is, no, you're fine. You're fine. Mm -hmm. Or they, you know, just they want the best for you. So they're not, you know, yeah, you don't like what they're doing, but they want the best for you. You know, I know I've been guilty of mm -hmm. that. Um, one thing I've, because I've got a couple kids who, you know, I've, you know, two of my kids in particular, they just tell me, you know, as I've been going through this divorce that they're fine. They don't really want to talk about it, you know, and I'm not going to make them talk about sure. it, but I just, I'll bring it up every now and then. How are you doing? And let them know that, Hey, if this is, a, I'll tell them, this is a hard time. Mm -hmm. You may not feel it right now, but it is. So if you ever want to talk about it, I'm available. Mm -hmm. um, and so, but, and, and so to your point, I think as parents, and, and to me, I, I guess that's the, I mean, when little kids are dealing with their parents more than anybody else. So I, I guess, mm -hmm. you know, as a child going through trauma, it's your parents normally that are going to be the people that you're talking to about it who are going to either hold space or not. Um, I mean, there's other mm -hmm. people as well, but I just think, just letting the kids talk and just listening to them mm -hmm. and not solving, not feeling like you have to solve their problem. Mm -hmm. Right. You, you know, my, my daughter, my oldest daughter, you know, she's concerned about things going on in the world right now. And I catch myself wanting to ease her frustrate, ease her fears by like maybe citing to something that maybe could, alleviate those fears but then I realized a while back that that doesn't do anything for her right that just tells her that you know don't you know maybe you're overreacting mm -hmm. which I don't think she is because like you right. said earlier that's her perception mm -hmm. she is feeling that and she can't just shut those off right just like none of them I mean when we have those feelings someone telling us we're wrong my experience has been someone telling me that I'm wrong doesn't help at all. No, it's just an additional trauma. Yeah. Right? It just I can see that. says I'm not safe to talk about this or people won't be there for me. Yeah. Yeah. Or they're saying, oh, don't be dramatic. Well, that's not what trauma is, right? Like the nervous system, in that case, the nervous system is actually quite dramatic. And so we can't dismiss that, right? But I think you were talking too about our tendency to move forward. And, you know, I, I remember, I, I mean, I've been a therapist for a long time. And so there's been a lot of like world events, country events that like I was working and I got updates 
session by session, right? And everybody coming in talked to me about it. I was working on 9-11 um, and had to hold a group that night. And I didn't want to do that. I was like, let's cancel, mm -hmm. right? But like my therapist brain was like, no, we have to sit and talk. And we have to talk about the fear. We have to talk about the uncertainty. Like none of us know what's going to happen. And maybe next week we'll know. And I wanted to postpone till next week. But nope, we're just going to sit with it, right? We're just going to come together, hold group, and feel whatever. I, it's always hard for me as a therapist when I, like, I'm experiencing it too. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not like I had a pre-warning or pre-prepared for that, right? And I think as a country, like, it, it kind of, like, we kind of got collectively as a country kicked in the gut and we lost our breath. And you could talk to a stranger and they were like, I know. I, like, what, what now, right? Like, everybody kind of collectively experienced that. And then especially for the families who directly experienced it, lost a loved one, right? They had a country rallying around them. Now, I don't know that, like, on the 10th anniversary that they were like, please, let's not dig this right. down and show video, right? We can do it too much. But I think we got that right. And it was just a couple of years later when the, Boston, the bombing at the Boston Marathon happened, right? And within hours, Boston Strong, Boston Strong, Boston Strong, I was like, can we just have a week to be like, Boston, what the hell just happened? Yeah. Boston, I'm scared. Like, right. Boston, I don't like that this keeps happening, right? Like, can we, before we move to Strong, can we actually feel what we should be feeling, right. what we are feeling? Because we don't always have to be strong. Right. Um, interestingly, when 9-11 happened, this kind of just kind of to give an insight into my emotional state, I thought of it as a New York event. Mm. And to a large extent, I kind of went about my day. Mm. And I, I thought about that a lot, like, wow, you know, that's where I was. Mm -hmm. I was shutting it off completely, not, didn't even want to feel it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, but um, one thing. Yeah, and, and I had a brother who was going to law school in Manhattan. I had a brother who was doing an internship at the Pentagon, right? So I wow. was like, and I, I had a sister who was also doing an internship back in D.C. So I was like. Half my siblings were like <laughs> in the two target places. Wow. Yeah. I was, I had a brother who was living there, but he had gone down to Chile, just moved to Chile just a few weeks earlier. Nobody knew. So we're like, mm. what? <laughs> yeah. Um, now, one thing that I want to mention too, because you talked, I think you started out talking about connection, you know, having, uh -huh. having yep. connection. And that's really been transformational for me, that concept of, the need to connect, and we've talked about that, you know, sitting with somebody, just emotionally connecting. Um, and I think it was, Pat, was it Patrick Carnes who said that the opposite of addiction is connection? Was that him? No, it was or? a TED Talk. A TED Talk? I don't remember the guy who okay. did the TED Talk, but, but it came from a TED Talk. I've thought about that, and I just, that, that, that concept is, I think, transformational for anybody who's struggling with anything in their life. Mm -hmm. I mean... I mean, it's not an overnight change, obviously, but but I think it. I, I think that um, going forward, like as a parent or, or or being somebody who has some influence over 
younger people especially, you know, mm-hmm. trying to open yourself up so that they can have somebody to connect with. I think, for me at least, with my kids, I mean, I've made lots of mistakes as a parent. Um, I've made lots of mistakes as a husband. I've made lots of mistakes as a human, as a friend, mm-hmm. lots of them. But I, I just think I'm not a malicious person. I know mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. And so I just, I've always kind of struggled with, you know, making up for stuff like that. And I don't know that making up is the right word. I mean, it's not, I can't go back and fix stuff that I've done, but, right. but working on that a connection, um, uh, letting people know, not just letting them know, but having the, you know, showing that you are open to them, that you can show up for them, uh, and not just, and coming back and checking in on them, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and like, uh, you mentioned that earlier, you know, just coming back and I'm here for you. And then later coming back and checking up on them rather than just say, hey, if you ever need me, give me a call. And right. then they call you and you never call them back, mm-hmm. which. Or maybe they don't call because they're like. Yeah. You put oh, the ball in their court. Doing. Yeah. Like, yeah. 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 So I guess for me, it's that that concept of, you know, connection. And, and I say addiction. I mean, going back to Gabor Mate, his definition of addiction, I think, is. Um, really good is anything, I, I don't remember the exact words, so I'm going to paraphrase it, but anything that is, um, I guess, maladaptive behavior. Right. And maladaptive coping. Yes, maladaptive coping. So that's a big umbrella. Yep. A big umbrella. And our world offers up a lot of ways to do a it. A lot of ways. And so the solution to that is that we as a society need to learn to connect emotionally with each other mm-hmm. and and be there for each other so that we can run you out of a job. Right. Yeah. Yep, yep. <laughs> I'm sure there's other I'll, things you want to be I'll doing anyway. In that world, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and, the, and, and I think in my mind, at least, uh, you know, the starting point for me, at least, is with my children, mm-hmm. you know, so that they have somebody that they know that they can share these hard things. Like I've told yep. them, like, you don't, I can't fix all your problems, but I can tell you that you don't ever have to sit in them and be scared by yourself. Mm-hmm. I will sit right next to you. Yep. Right next to you. And we will just be scared together, mm-hmm. <laughs> you right, know, right. and that's all I can do. And and I, and I think for me, that's like the core of starting this, you know, building a better society. Yes. I mean, I, I do think, right, when we're connecting, like when we're social and it, it's not like social, like eh, having a party, being the life of the party. It's like just that connection. It says to the nervous system, I'm safe yeah. because if I'm not. If I, if I was not safe, I wouldn't be sitting here with this person, right? Like, so we know that some of that social connection is actually trying to get through to the nervous system and saying, you survived, you made it through, you're safe now. Um, and the connection kind of returns that nervous system like, okay, I'm okay. That was really hard. That was life-threatening or that was just, you know, overwhelming. And now... I'm going to be okay. I'm talking to somebody. I'm with somebody. Somebody's here with me. Excellent. Yeah. Jackie, thank you for taking the time. And I did want to mention that Jackie also has a podcast. Speaking to her in third person right now. She's right in front of me. (laughs) Jackie has a podcast. It's called Thanks for Sharing. And it's on Apple Music. Yeah, it's on most of the platforms, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. And I've listened to a number of the episodes and it's very good. So I would recommend anybody looking for other content to listen to or just maybe wants to listen to a good podcast to check out thanks for sharing thank you
Thanks, Jackie. Thank you. And it's good to be here. Yeah, thank you. And I uh, appreciate everybody who listened. And uh, until next time, thanks.